and welcome to Freelancing for Journalists, the podcast that tells you everything you need to know about working for yourself. I'm Lily Cantor, a freelance money, health and lifestyle journalist. And I'm Emma Wilkinson, a freelance journalist specialising in medicine and health. This is our the pilot episode of it, our podcast. It is indeed. So we really need to explain what we're all about, Lily. I'll let you do that. Okay, so Emma and I have both been freelance for quite a number of years now, 20 years collectively, and we are well aware that there's a lot that goes on behind the scenes that um, people don't know about. We wanted to lift the lid on some of the sort of trade secrets around freelancing and explain the nuts and bolts of what it's like to be a freelance journalist and how to make a success of it. So we spent mm, pretty much all of last year um, writing our book, Freelancing for Journalists. Yep, and it's out in July 2020, so that's quite exciting. And then we thought, actually, it'd be a really good idea to do a podcast and get some guests in to talk through some of those issues that we cover in the book. Yeah, definitely. So this episode, we've got two special guests in, David Clark and Claire Jenkins, who've been, uh, who both have a lot of experience in journalism, and they are going to be talking to us today about when you become the story. But before we get started, we're going to kick off each episode with our top freelance hack. That one bit of advice we wish we'd known from the get-go that would have made life a lot easier. So, this episode, my top hack is I wish I'd tried out news shifts earlier. And the reason I didn't was because they quite poorly paid and I thought it wouldn't be very cost effective for me to travel all the way to London from where I live in Leicestershire to to go and work for 120 or 150 pounds but actually when I did start doing them I realized they were an excellent way to make contacts with commissioning editors and kind of get your name out there and get yourself known and I found very quickly I was actually earning two or three times as much or more working from home writing features for the very commissioning editors I'd done news shifts for so in the end it actually paid for itself yeah I've I've had the same experience with that and I think even now working from home most of the time every so often I will just pop into London to meet editors that I do regular work for because I think it really helps them to have a face to put to the name yeah yeah definitely okay so I am going to admit that when I started out freelancing um I had every intention in the world of being super organised and set up a Word document with all the commissions and fees that I was going to write down. Um, So it was there in theory, but I was really, really rubbish at keeping it up to date. And a lot of things were just in my head. And then you realise that further down the line, you've created all these headaches for yourself because you might miss deadlines or double book yourself. And when it comes to doing your taxes, you then have to spend hours and hours trawling back through all your invoices and emails to work out what you were doing many many months ago so my top tip is however boring it is to do all that organizational stuff at the beginning and then actually stick to it and use it yeah so i have a google doc for everything and that was the uh, first thing i did when i started as freelance was actually i made a list of all the things i needed to do and all the google docs i needed Um, And I set those all up. So, yeah, getting organised is really, really key. 
Right. So on to our topic then for this week. Um, this episode we're going to be discussing when you become the story, and Emma and I both have examples of this. I've done this quite a few times. My first piece was probably the most controversial one, and it upset a few friends of mine. I um, did a piece for Telegraph Women Online about how I don't allow my children to have any sweets or sugary snacks, and I think some of my friends felt this was a bit of a dig at them. Um, no comment and um it led to some other parenting health pieces and i did some stuff on how running with your partner is an absolute nightmare for the guardian and emma was quoted in this one as well i am and it is um i've also done stuff for female in where they came and dressed me up in a horrendous pink dress i hate pink and the only dress they brought was pink um, and that was about savings and I'm currently working on a two-part series for Moneywise magazine about touring the UK in a motorhome with my kids this summer, which could go one way or the other. Um, so when did you have any discussions um, with your husband first, especially kind of around the stories that involve the kids about how you can involve them in that? <laughs> well, uh, yes and no. So... I think the very first piece I did for the Telegraph, I don't think I actually told him, um, and I provided a photo. Um, but conveniently, my my um, children have got a different surname to me, so they're not kind of identified in that way. Um, my kids and my husband are not on social media, so yeah, I have to be kind of careful about that. And the kind of agreement is that if it's anything involving the kids we have that discussion first so we did do a piece for the telegraph about um, the meningitis vaccine and they actually came to our house and took a photograph of all four of us and the way i sold it to my husband was well we get a professional photographer coming to our house taking a picture of all four of us we don't actually have any pictures of all four of us and we'll get a copy of um, the photos if we ask nicely we get paid and I was just starting out freelancing, so I think he felt like he couldn't say no. So, um, yeah, but we definitely have those discussions. And, and now, you know, I kind of am a bit more choosy about the stuff that I'll do that for. Um, and you say you're more choosy, but do you think you've got more confident at doing these kinds of stories? Do you pitch them more frequently? Yeah, so I, I do quite a lot for Love Money now. Um, and they're all pretty much first person pieces and they, they're generally about me they're not involved in the family so much um so i did one about getting a smart meter installed recently and whether that saved us money um and then i did a more morbid one about um what would happen to our household finances if i died and basically how screwed everybody would be because i'm in charge of all the money <laughs> in the house <laughs> so yeah um i quite like writing that stuff because it's um it's lighter, it's easy to do because it's just everyday life stuff. Um, and it's, yeah, it's nice sometimes to do that rather than the sort of big investigations. Yeah. Um, I mean, I haven't got as much experience as you on this because it's probably due to the type of things that I usually write about. But I have done it from time to time. Um, I've just remembered, actually, I once had a, an ultrasound when I was eight months pregnant on the six o'clock news. <laughs> <I should've laughs> because do. they just needed a pregnant woman. I happened to be there. Um, but the one that springs to mind is uh, I was a case study in a feature uh, about petite, which was their word, not my word, uh, women who give birth to huge babies. Uh, that was in the Daily Mail. And they've got masses of budget for these kind of things. So they sent a makeup artist and a photographer to the house. So it was quite an experience. 
So how did that one come about? Um, so a journalist put out a call for case studies for the feature on a freelancing group on Facebook that I'm a member of. And I knew these case studies paid quite well. So I was intrigued. And my third child was £10.6. Ooh. Yeah. <laughs> that noise. And uh, I mean, I'm not that big. Um, but I could also tell from the responses that she was getting that there were a lot more kind of horror stories or scare stories or people who knew someone who'd had a disastrous experience with a big baby, but mine was fine. So I I kind of wanted to provide that other side of the story that, it, you know, it's not all bad kind of thing. So I got in touch with her and uh, yeah, she was very keen. So are you glad you did it? Was it worth doing? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I got £150 for an hour putting on. My dress was pink too. Yeah, they yeah, love, no, they just love pink. pink dresses. I was in a blue dress when she turned up and it wasn't smart enough. I had to go and change. Um, but yeah, for having a few photos taken, and we got some nice photos, and just having a quick chat on the phone with her about it, I got copy approval, the final feature was really good, and the funniest bit was that my mum and dad, who read the Daily Mail every day, I didn't tell them I was doing it, so one day they just came across a massive picture of <laughs> me and grandchild <laughs> in the paper, and that was just, I mean, it was almost worth it just for that. Um, I did kind of have that concern of, do I want this information out there? Um, what happens when the then two-year-old becomes grows up and maybe comes across this article? But uh, I, yeah, in the end, I decided it was fine, and for the kind of topic, it was all it was all okay. I was happy to talk about it. So I think we can safely say that our guests have plenty of experience on this topic. So let's get them involved. Today we have with us Claire Jenkins, an experienced broadcast journalist who has produced countless radio features and documentaries for Radio 4 and many other outlets. And she's also taught history of journalism and feature writing at Sheffield Hallam University. Uh, joining Claire is her colleague at Sheffield Hallam, David Clark, as well as teaching media law, regulation and ethics. Uh, David is an international expert on contemporary legend and folklore. He's written multiple books on everything from UFOs to ghost legends and has provided his expert advice on several radio and TV shows. To get the ball rolling then, guys, I'm going to ask you something which we ask all of our guests, and that is, what is your top freelance hack? That thing that makes your life easier, that you wish you'd known when you started out. So, Claire, what's your hack? I've been thinking and thinking about this, and I couldn't think of anything sensible and... Um practical what I did think was that when I worked in London on a magazine I wanted to become a celebrity interviewer and I came to Sheffield to get some more experience on a newspaper before going back to London to be a celebrity interviewer and realized very early on that actually real people are far far more interesting than celebrities who've got a PR with them who rehearse everything in advance and so on so actually a lot of my features, a lot of my freelance work has been through talking to ordinary people. And if I was going to therefore give a tip, and I know that this is one that Danny Hall, who works for the Sheffield Star, also gave when he came into a guest lecture once, was talk to everybody. So networking has already been mentioned, networking with potential commissioning editors or whatever, but I would also say just talk to everybody because it's a cliche, but everybody has got a story to tell. And so look for stories everywhere and just by having a conversation with somebody at a bus stop or in a train station or in a cafe in the Peak District where I went in last week for a cup of coffee and slice of cake, 
and got chatting to the two men who were in there, one of whom owns classic cars and was talking to me about classic cars. And the other one, it turned out, um, had set up HSBC Bank in India. And we had a long chat about India and Hyderabad and things like that. And so why is he now in charge of a cafe in Lytton? We didn't get that far, (laughs) but I'm going to go back and ask him because that's where the stories come from. So I would say, you know, really just start learning how to talk to people and just listen to what they have to say. And that's where you're going to get stories and that's where you're going to get features from. Great advice. Now, Dave, can you match that? What's your top hack? <laughs> well, I thought about this quite a lot as well. And I, I came down on a very practical one, uh, which, again, is very specific to what I do. Uh, and that is having a clear list of fees and charges uh, for, for, the, for the work that I do for the media. Because I've spent many, many years just running around every time there's some story in the media that someone wants a comment on from an expert and they contact me and I've... I've travelled across the country, I've done all sorts of stuff, and then I thought, hold on a minute, why am I doing this, a lot of it, for no pay at all? So I've set down a very clear sheet that says, this is how much I charge for a day's work, this is what I charge for doing research, this whole list of different charges. And so when someone contacts me, and, and virtually every day now, this is the way it's getting, I have something in my inbox from some tv show or radio program or something saying we are doing something on this subject we've heard you're the expert um would you (coughs) would you travel down to london at the drop of a hat spend two days there running around after us and etc etc and i just say right here's my list of fees and basically the ones who are serious then say right okay we can do this and they'll set up a proper arrangement and the time wasters you don't hear from them and that has improved my work-life balance, no end. <laughs> <laughs> and also, just as a kind of general freelance point, we shouldn't be doing work for free. So, mm. yeah. I mean, I mean, my my the way I do things is probably a bit unique or sort of unique. But for someone starting out, if you want a baseline, you can go to the NUJ, who yeah. have like um, there's like a freelance publication they do that sets out what people have actually been paid for work. So yeah. you've got some idea of what to charge. Yeah, no, that's a really good resource. Yeah, and it's in the resource list it of is, our book as well. It is in the resource list of our I'm book. Glad Great to hear minds, Dave, <laughs> think alike. So, on this topic of the journalist being the story, uh, Claire, am I right in thinking that you have done radio features based on a personal experience, or at least using that as a starting point in the past? Yes, but latterly, because when I started out in journalism, it was very much about the story being the other person and not about me. And I know things have changed immeasurably since then. And I'm forever reading stories in newspapers and magazines, which are all about me, me, me. But I was brought up to think that it's that the interesting person is the other person. Um, however, um, in more recent times, because of what I was saying about ideas coming from life experiences or whatever, then I have found that I've had ideas commissioned by Radio 4 which are based on my own experiences. And it took a while to kind of get comfortable with that, I think. Um, And the first one, or one of the first ones, I guess, was really still looking at other people. And it was a group of people in India, Anglo-Indians in India, whom I'd been friendly with for 15 years and would go and stay with them and it was completely madcap and it was like being in Alice in Wonderland 
and then realising, you know, this is really something I'd like to make a radio programme about. And I think actually I did try and get Radio 4 to commission it for about five years, and then in the end they did. And so I'm part of that, but really I'm, I'm the narrator, whereas the real people, the ones with the extraordinary stories, are the Anglo-Indians. And then subsequently, a couple of things which were much closer to home, really. One was when um, my sister-in-law, as you talked about birth, Emma, my sister-in-law gave birth four months premature to twins and was taken into um, King's College Hospital in London. One of them died after three weeks. One of them is still with us, but he's very disabled. He's now six. And when I first went into that hospital and into this neonatal ward, and I'm in real intensive care, and all these this bleeping, beep, beep, beeping the whole time, and these tiny, tiny little scraps of humanity, and seeing the amount of attention that doctors and nurses and specialists were giving to these tiny scraps of humanity, I thought, I knew nothing about this. And so I put forward an idea called the incubator, which was including my sister-in-law and my brother and their experiences, but also talking to all these experts because I was just amazed by the dedication and I wanted to give voice really to that. And what's nice about that in one way is that my sister-in-law, because it's still online, my sister-in-law, who works for a charity connected to tiny babies, neonatal babies, directs people to that programme to listen to because it's about shared experiences and they seem to find it really helpful. And then, yeah, and then another one, another programme I made was actually um, after my mum died and we had to clear out her fam the family home or the flat where she lived and the difficulties of doing that, the emotional difficulties of yeah. doing that. But that wasn't just me, it was me and my sisters. But then it was also another couple of journalists who'd been through the same experience, Deborah Orr from The Times and Robert Crampton from The Times, and talking to them about how difficult that had been. And again, it's tapping into this kind of life experience, I suppose, that many people share. Um, and it's in one way every day, which I think was a word that was used earlier on, sort of everyday experience. But actually, again, it's a very rich experience because it's every day. Yeah, and you were in those cases, you were using your experience as a starting point yes. and then bringing in other experts and people who'd gone through similar things. And yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah I remember that um, radio um, broadcast that you did ab about clearing out your mother's home. And I remember because I couldn't, I couldn't listen to it all. Oh, dear. I found it so upsetting. Mm. Um and I, I, I've just—it was just too much, just mm. too much. And that, so I can, I can really see how that tapped into something that that was so kind of emotionally charged, and so many people would have that connection with that. And I wonder, from sort of production point of view, when you're doing something like that, do you have to make slightly different editorial decisions, or can you sort of step back from that at all? Or there's certain things you you wouldn't include in that. Um, there's always certain things that you, I guess, wouldn't include because you're always aware of the sensitivity of whatever the topic is, really. Um, uh, were there things I wouldn't include in that? I don't know. There was a point with that when I was going through this hamper with my two sisters of paperwork and things, and there were things in there that we didn't know were going to be there. So there was a lock of one of my brother's hair from when he was a baby, and there was, because he had beautiful blonde curls, 
And then there was another one, which was a letter, which we opened, and it was a love letter from my dad to my mum, and it had, um, and like, we read it out, and it had this these seeds in the bottom, and they had been a flower, and he was making reference to that. Uh, oh, sorry, in, in the letter, yeah, he was making reference to this, this flower, you know, that he'd, he'd got it for her, and it's just there, and we'd never seen this before. One of my sisters did get very emotional about it, um, and but she was fine about me keeping that in because it is difficult you know to do something like that so in terms of what we keep what I'd keep out I suppose with something like that I would go back and and say to them are you okay I think I played it to them before it went out and were they okay with those bits you know and they were I mean one of the with the incubator program um I actually think in that case, my sister-in-law was very keen to do it. I don't think my brother would have done it if it hadn't been me doing the programme. He's much more reserved. Mm. And and I could see it was an effort for him to talk about it. But he did it because I'm his sister. Yeah, yeah, so so you've got that connection. Yeah, I think otherwise, if anybody else had come to ask him, it would have been a definite no. Yeah. And do you think, is there an extra layer of trust there? Yes, uh, and and I think, I think I played back to them the bits because obviously you have to edit something down very tightly. So, you know, I did play back to them how it would sound towards yeah. the end, just so that they were okay with that. Yeah. And normally I wouldn't do that. It's like you know you wouldn't normally show a an article to somebody that you've interviewed unless unless it is very sensitive, I suppose. Yeah. Yeah. Um, David, your experience is a little bit different because um, you have this role, in addition to being a journalist and lecturer, as an expert on legend, folklore. Um, but this means that you're asked to speak about the topic or then you're the one getting called up by the journalist wanting an expert voice. So did that feel odd when you first started having spent so many years in local papers being the journalist? Did it feel really odd being on the other side of it? Yeah, it did uh, feel very odd. And I think initially because I was when I was sort of just out of journalism I had all the sort of ongoing contacts so I knew all the news editors and because I'd recently been working as a journalist I got more and more people saying would you write something for us on this subject but then as you know in journalism there's a quick turnover of staff and what I was finding is that all the people that I knew when I was in the profession had moved on and gone on to other um, working in magazines or on TV so then um, I was getting contacted by people who didn't know me and didn't know I was a journalist. So even when you're sort of telling them, well, you keep reminding them, I am a journalist, you know, I am capable of writing something on this. And it's like, oh, no, we just want some comments from you as an expert. So I did find that very um, odd and uncomfortable. But the, 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 the other thing that constantly comes up, given the nature of what I write about and what I research, um, they, they, they always ask you, do you believe you know, do you believe in this stuff? As, assuming that because I write about flying saucers and ET life and ghosts and this kind of thing, that I must be some kind of wide-eyed believer who, who spends all my nights in haunted houses and things. So th- they find it really difficult to get their head around the fact that someone can actually write and research about it and, and look at the subject in an objective way. It, it just seems, it just people just don't seem to be able to understand that, you ca- that anyone is capable of doing that. Yeah. But like, if I was sort of teaching religious studies 
at a university. No one would say, do you believe in Jesus then? Would they? <laughs> they treat right. you as an expert on religious studies. So I don't, I don't see what the difference is. So I'm grappling with that all the time. I must admit, that was my first thought when I heard. <laughs> <laughs> I heard what you were an expert in. Yeah. I was like, oh, really? He's, he seems too normal for that. <laughs> <laughs> so there you go. So, I mean, you mentioned this already, but do you think then you've got quite a big advantage um, having got the background as a journalist, being able to kind of deal with journalists or, you know, or do you find yourself telling them yeah. what they need to do? I mean, some it's, it's impossible to generalise because, I mean, I've done some amazing um, programmes, particularly with the BBC, um, um, the uh, Inside Out show have had me on about three or four times and I, I just know they're going to do a professional job so I can just let them get on with it. But then I just know when I'm talking to, say, someone from the Daily Mail, that whatever I say isn't going to come out that way in print. So, I mean, I recently had a tussle with them in that I did a, <coughs> a story that exposed a hoax. And because it was such a good story, when they actually ran the story, they didn't expose it as a hoax. They just ran the story. So subsequent to that, I'm now getting people telling me, oh, you propose, you're, you're, you're sort of writing about this and promoting it, and everyone knows it's a hoax. And I said, well, yeah, I was the one who exposed it as a hoax. <laughs> but because the Daily Mail had run it without the end of the story, yeah. they all assume that I'm the one who's spreading this nonsense. And I find that really difficult. So how does that conversation go after you've seen the kind of article that's ended up not as you expected well uh, revenge is a dish best served cold and uh, exactly a year on from this, this is a christmas story they came back to me say have you got any stories for us about chris for ufos over christmas and i just said no not talking to you now you've upset me <laughs> <laughs> diva so are there are there different skills involved so you were print journalist first so did you mm. have to learn anything in order to do documentaries and tv stuff uh, well, I'm a bit of a stick in the mud, I'm afraid, and I still do print journalism. I still think it's a fantastic um, aspect of journalism that can't be overlooked. So I've, I've tended to stick with it, but I, I have dipped my toes into the uh, into the um, you know the podcasting realm. I did a bit of stuff with Claire actually for the National Archives, and with with our colleague uh, Richard, uh, we'll be doing shortly a YouTube project. So I shall be appearing in that. So that that will be a completely new venture for me. But I've done all I've dabbled in all sorts of stuff. Yeah, and those skills are just going to be transferable anyway. It's yeah, just about knowing they are. what a good story yeah. is. And, yeah. yeah. I yeah. mean, I think I should be applying for an equity card because most of the um, the stuff I do at the National Archives appears to involve acting, <laughs> pushing <laughs> trolleys up and down and <laughs> <laughs> weird stuff like that. Well, as long as you're getting paid, that's the main thing. <laughs> so, Claire, you mentioned this before about um, journalists using their own experience and it, it's, it's more common in journalism now. Um, and I just wonder, kind of, are there any topics that I kind of you wouldn't talk about, um, or kind of, how do you advise students, you know, in terms of what to consider when doing personal stories? I mean, you must cover this when you, you're teaching feature writing. We always start with personal experience stories, and I have to say, I mean, without sounding kind of cheesy, but it is a real privilege to then read what people have written about their lives, and um, and I do say to them if it's too sensitive don't write about it. if it's going to upset you don't write about it I've been amazed by what people will write about and also when it comes to doing things like interviewing people I will say and it's going back to what I said about my brother that um, you know they, they might want to interview a brother a sister a parent a grandparent and I always say just be aware it's really difficult to do that because you forget to ask very basic questions 
And they always say, no, it'd be fine. And then they forget to ask the basic questions. How old are you? Where do you live? What do you do for a living? So there's those things that can be difficult. And in terms of personal experiences generally, I think if journalists have got something to say, Melanie Reed is a brilliant example from The Times. She writes a spinal column because she fell from a horse nine years ago and became tetraplegic. She's written a fantastic book called The World That I Fell Out Of. She's got something to say about disability and living with disability. And so that's something I always turn to. But I think too often there are other writers who kind of feel that they have to write about themselves and then they run out of steam or else they have to keep on creating mini dramas. And that's happened in the realms of confessional journalism where some female journalists have had to take themselves out of that because they admit, Bryony Gordon is one, that they have to keep on sort of having little mini dramas in their lives. Liz Jones is another in the mail. So I think if you've got something to say then by all means say it, but know when it's time to move on to get other people saying things because they've got really interesting lives too. Yeah, that's really true. And it reminds me of that Samantha Brick. I can see Emma is nodding and she's <laughs> having the same thought as me. Uh, yeah, there's the Samantha Brick story about um, I'm s- I'm so attractive, other women can't hate me. Hate yeah. me. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and yeah. That, that seemed to be very much, <laughs> let's do a story for the sake of doing a story because that's going to get my name out there. Um, yeah. And I think, but, that, you know, I think that does happen more and more now, like I say. And, and it, it, it just can sometimes mean that it's not actually journalism. It's just, well, I won't use the word that I think it is on radio. <laughs> mm. um, Boris Johnson would call it onanism. Who's the guy in the Guardian <laughs> Weekend magazine who writes about his dramas every single week? And I... The more you read it, you, you just think, this can't be right. You yeah. wouldn't have that number of dramas no, every single yeah. week. Yeah. I mean, there's been other columnists who've written about... There was the anonymous column in the... That was in the Guardian Saturday Weekend magazine about living with teenagers, mm. which was turned into a book. And then it later on was kind of exposed who had done it, and that caused kind of lots of upset down the line and... Julie Myerson did the same yeah. about writing a book all about her son and his drug addiction and his violence in the home. you know. And you just think he was 17 at the time and that was a big controversy about whether that was fair on him. So I think you do have to be really careful. But also, like I say, just I'm sorry, reiterating what I've said before, that lots of things are happening out there you know, and other people who've got fascinating stories to tell. I guess there's, a, there's that fine balance as well. If you're doing stories not necessarily about you, but but it might be about your friends or your family like like you've done Claire and how do you decide yes I'm going to go there they've got an important story to tell and they're they're willing to share or you know actually this is going to be too distressing well I had some friends who had adopted and they had adopted a brother and sister and it was really really difficult Um, they had 10 years of hell and they said to me you should do a program about this And we did do a programme. My production company made a programme about the other side of adoption. And we talked to different people who had really bad experiences. And, um, you know, it just gave a different perspective to something to do with adoption. And and they, you know, I think all of them had kind of worked through it. And we had um, the children's minister talking there as well, who himself had actually been brought up with adoptive siblings. So it was an important discussion. It was a really important programme to make, which came out of friends wanting to share that experience. And then on a very different level, I was just mentioning to some students this morning about being in... Well, it was with you, Lily, when you were sighing. Mm. 
<laughs> and I said, you know, I've made a whole half-hour programme about sighing where you find, believe it or not, an expert in um, sighing and groaning in biblical texts and you find another expert about the history of sighing and its relationship with melancholia and how you have to sigh in order to get that out of you but if you sigh too much you'll become desiccated like a leaf and you know there's poems about sighing there's music that's based on sighing including a Beatles song yesterday you know and you just suddenly think wow this is really interesting and it all came from somebody going in the office yeah yeah and I think that's a really you know good example of how yeah stories are everywhere yeah and you can build on something that might be your personal experience you don't have to go down the road of you be the person to write about you you can bring in the experts and the other examples yep. and case studies and <laughs> that's right and that's why my field is is a perfect mind for this kind of story because everybody's had a weird experience yep. of some kind or other i've not <laughs> <Don't you> know? <laughs> sorry not yet <laughs> the exception that proves the rule <laughs> that she knows of mm. great i think that's a good place to leave it Thank you to our brilliant guests, David Clark and Claire Jenkins, for providing us with that really helpful advice. I hope you all found that as useful as we did. If you want to know more about any of this, you can check out our website at freelancingforjournalists.com, where you'll find the links to all those useful resources that we mentioned during the podcast. And we've put those links in the episode notes. As we mentioned earlier, our book Freelancing for Journalists is out hopefully in July, so keep your eyes out for that. You can also follow us on Twitter. I'm at Lily Cantor. And I'm at Emma Journo. And please do get in touch if you have any questions you'd like answering about freelance life. You can email us at freelancingforjournalists at gmail.com. And if any of this has been at all helpful, then please like, rate and subscribe to the podcast so people can find us. This podcast has been developed with the help of a grant from Sheffield Hallam University and was produced by students on the BA and MA journalism courses. Thanks for listening, everyone. Bye. Bye.